What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, and I get to keep this full house in order today. I'm joined by Shireen Ahmed, freelance sports writer in Toronto, Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Penn State University, Lindsay Gibbs, sports writer at Think Progress in D.C., and Jessica Luther, independent writer in Austin, Texas. Burn It All Down is the sports and feminism podcast that you need, and it needs you. This week, we're launching a Patreon campaign to raise money so we can keep doing this work. Basically, on Patreon, you become a patron of our podcast by pledging a monthly donation. It could be as small as a dollar a month or as big as, well, maybe we don't want to build a glass ceiling here quite yet. <laughs> In exchange for a monthly donation, you get rewards from us, such as special Patreon-only podcast segments, opportunities to add to our burn pile, and you'll receive a special newsletter curated by the hosts, and more. The support from your Patreon donations will allow us to continue to afford quick, high-quality editing and to provide transcripts for each episode. Beyond that, we hope to hire a part-time producer to smooth out the behind-the-scenes work, and in time, we want to take the show on the road and record live in front of audiences, meeting all of you, hopefully. All of these things take time, effort, and money to make possible. So please consider donating to the Patreon campaign. Okay, so this week's episode, we will talk about doping cases in Russia that prompted the country's ban from the 2018 Winter Olympics, update you on the circus that is the FIFA trials, and the campaign for U.S. soccer president, and then Amira Rose Davis interviews former volleyball player and coach Silvio Ortiz. Before we get right to it... I want to ask Shireen, how are you feeling about your city's big win? Oh, yay MLS, yay Toronto FC. <laughs> I just want you on as the lone Canadian on this as a co-host. <laughs> I want to let you know that we have claimed Josie Altidore as ours. Oh, you you mean Sloane Stevens' boyfriend? Sloane Stevens' boyfriend? <laughs> Sloane Stevens' boyfriend. And, you know, of course, she's an honorary Torontonian as well uh, by association. We are thrilled. This was a really, really, really big deal. And there was so much happiness. There was so much joy. And for such a sort of diverse multicultural city like Toronto, like we've always loved the world's game. We've always loved the beautiful game. But to make it more of our own was just so special. And the goals were phenomenal. You know, there was, I'm not going to rant about the penalty that was not given to Gianvico, <laughs> 
But the ball doesn't lie. I mean, they ended up winning <laughs> 2 nothing anyway. So the ball doesn't lie. The football gods were on our side. <laughs> and we are extremely, extremely happy. There was no rioting. There was no nothing. There was no looting. There was people buying so each other. Polite. Buying so each polite. other. And buying but, each other beer and not but jaywalking. Shireen, but Shireen, I, I have like a complaint, which is that Toronto FC doesn't have anything I can call them by. You you literally have no mascot. Like, How is that I, possible? I wanted to say, Shireen, <laughs> how about them Cubs kind of a thing? And and you haven't what, – what's going on with that? Well, truthfully, we shall be known as the champions. So you're happy, <laughs> happy to – I'm happy to have you address this as that. But the other thing is, I just wanted to let you know about a mascot. You clearly don't know about Bitchy the Hawk. Bitchy is a hawk. Bitchy, this is a really cool article I forgot about from uh, Bleacher Report from 2013. Bitchy the Hawk is a mascot, quote unquote, who scares off seagulls that come to BMO Stadium. So Bitchy was used to get the seagulls who used to come because the grass is really nice to go and sort of. Wait, are you you saying Bitchy? Like Bitchy? Boy? Like B I T C H Y, like because we're well, bitchy. It, 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 bitchy, the hawk. Okay, the hawk's name is Bitchy. Okay, yeah. Okay, okay. And, All right. And, Can that be our so, show's mascot? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bitchy, the hawk. Oh my god. I'm so so good so with that. here's here's what this article says in the importance of bitchy. So there is an importance in being bitchy. The proximity to Lake Ontario and all the fine food at BMO makes the stadium a haven for gulls. So the pesky birds have caused quite the nuisance for players fans and the cleanup staff so what bitchy does is really <laughs> selflessly keeps pests away from yes. the field and i think this is wonderful right. that's all wonderful right. look we've okay. got we've got a, a bitchier intro music and now we've got bitchy the hawk i am all for this this is great i'm all right so i'm not sure you can have josie because we need all the black people in the <laughs> soccer that we have <laughs> <laughs> so we could just not. borrow him i I guess we do technically borrow um, what's her face from Canada. So yeah, we we'll Sydney, we we'll Sydney, yes. yeah. But but um, <laughs> we, we he is literally he's going to eat for free for the rest of his life in this city. I can oh, just lots, say of that. lots of poutine, lots <laughs> of Okay, Whew. so let's move on. On December 5th, the IOC announced that it would suspend the Russian national team from taking part in the 2018 Winter Olympic Games in South Korea's Pyeongchang over serious doping allegations. Athletes cleared of doping charges will be allowed to participate, but it's not clear how that's going to go. Jessica, what do you make of all this? Yeah, I'm super interested in doping. As the ladies on the show know, I've been pushing for this for a while. One of the things I wanted to start with, just in case people are interested in this, it's fascinating. One of the major whistleblowers in this case is this guy named Grigory Rodchenkov. He's the chemist who spent 10 years as Russia's anti-doping lab chief and was key to carrying out the cheating scheme. Actually happened in Sochi, which are kind of wild. Like a, a team assembled by Russia's sports ministry tampered with more than 100 urine samples to seal evidence of top athlete steroids use throughout the course of the competition. They did this like in the dark of night. And this is a lot of what they've gotten in trouble for. And this guy, Rachenkov, if you're interested in how whistleblowing works, there's a Netflix documentary specifically about him called Icarus that came out in August, I want to say. Rachenkov is actually now in the witness protection program somewhere. 
through the United States. You know, it's interesting because like one of the things I wanted to say from the top, like the IOC statement never used the word banned. Right. Russia is just facing a host of sanctions for the upcoming games like Russian officials aren't allowed to attend. The flag will not be displayed. The anthem will not be played. Athletes from Russia with histories of rigorous drug testing, they they can petition to compete in neutral uniforms. The panel that the IOC is going to put together will rule on each athlete's eligibility. Those who do receive a special dispensation will compete as individuals wearing that neutral uniform. But the record books will forever say that Russia won zero medals at the Olympics, which is something very important to Russia. I imagine Putin is very upset about that particular thing. So there are so many directions to discuss about doping. And this one about and then there's some about Russia in particular. Right. So for me, there's always bigger questions about doping in general. Like, I'm not sure that I get it ultimately outside of banning things that actively harm people that are dangerous. You know, I sort of chafe at the search for purity in sport that'll never ring true for me when so many things are allowed, when there will always be disparities in what resources different athletes have access to, and when this idea of purity is used against intersex and transgender athletes who want to compete. But at the same time, I, I recognize that there are rules, and sport is nothing without them, literally. Like, there's nothing, sport is nothing <laughs> without rules. Yeah. And so, once there are rules in place, people have to follow them, right? And if you don't, then there are consequences. And so, in this case, systemic national attempts to circumvent the rules should then lead to wide scale punishment of that nation if we carry the logic to its conclusion. I mean, what else was the IOC supposed to do in the face of what they had learned about what Russia did? But then finally, I'm sort of wondering, like, what all this means for international politics, which is, like, very heightened and tense in this particular moment. A lot of it swirling around Russia, who seem to be interfering and in particular getting caught interfering in a lot of different elections. And it's the country who's about to host the World Cup. The nation's deputy prime minister, Vitaly Mutko, was Russia's top sports official during the 2014 Sochi Games and was directly implicated by Dr. Rachenkov. As part of the ruling, Mr. Mutko has been barred for life from the Olympics. He is in charge of the World Cup that will be happening in Russia. It's so much. So, Lindsay, it's so much. Like, this is like real life, y'all. And Infantino has said nothing to remove him. Yeah. He is still yeah. the head of the organizing committee. FIFA's fine oh with gosh. it, FYI. FIFA's good. The FIFA Ethics Committee yeah, is happy. Of course. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> far. So, like, I mean, there's so many things here. But, like, Lindsay, what do you think about all of this? All right. Well, I just want to take us back a little bit. I think it is important to kind of go over a little bit of what actually Russia did. Because I think you hear systematic doping, and it's kind of hard to to wrap your head around, right? But the, the, the information we have from Dr. Rodchenkov, I think is how you pronounce it, the whistleblower is just extraordinary, so first of all, that we the WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, and also Rochenkov, their studies have found that between 2011 and 2015, the Russian Ministry of Sport erased a minimum of 312 positive doping tests for years when Rochenkov was the head of the Russia anti-doping efforts. He used his experience as a PhD in analytical chemistry to help Russian athletes with his go-to drug cocktail, which was a combo of three anabolic steroids that helped them recover faster. And he would mix them with alcohol, Shiva's whiskey for men and martini vermouth for women, of course, because doping is nothing without also gender stereotypes. <laughs> okay. And that helped the drugs absorb more quickly. 
But things really took a step up with Sochi. Putin really used Sochi as a way to completely lift up his reputation and kind of revamp his reputation within Russia. If you look at the approval ratings of Putin before Sochi versus after Sochi, it's almost just like a straight arrow up. Like it's staggering. So anyways, just, just to, to a little bit of what Rochenkov, who told the New York Times all of this information as part of his whistleblowing, because he, he moved to Los Angeles with this filmmaker who was doing Icarus because two other people implicated in the scandal have already been killed in Russia. So so, you know, he's literally... Or I think they had died. They had died, but okay, they had died <laughs> yeah. under very suspicious circumstances, I should say. As they do. Yes. As they okay. do. So he said that each night during Sochi, he'd receive a list from the sports ministry official detailing the samples that would need to be swapped. This is during the Sochi Olympics. So the samples were anonymous, which meant that the athletes had to assist with this part. So they would snap photos of their sample form so that he would have the seven-digit numbers associated with their urine samples. Wow. And then, like, okay, picture a movie, right? So, like, everything's in shadows right now. Okay. So when he got the signal that the samples were ready, Dr. Rachenkov would take off his lab coat, change into a Russian national team sweatshirt, and make his way downstairs to a storage space that had been converted into a makeshift lab, its lone window covered with tape. <laughs> then one of his colleagues would pass the sealed samples to him through a hole in the wall that was covered by a cabinet during the daytime hours. And Rochenkov would then pass the samples along to, quote, the man he believed was a Russian intelligence officer, who would then take the samples away and return them hours later with caps unlocked. The officer also supplied clean urine that was supplied by the athletes months prior to the Olympics. Whoa. So this was an extremely oh elaborate scheme. Yeah, sophisticated. Sophisticated that, you know, has been said to have involved people at the highest level of, you know, the, like actual, it's not the KGB anymore, I believe it's called the FBS. But anyways, the Russian intelligence agency that, that Rochenkov believes there were dozens, maybe enough to a hundred kind of working undercover at the Olympics. Amira, do you have a kind of history thingy to share? I always have history thingies. <laughs> I love history thingies. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it's really interesting to think about this in the context of, as Jess kind of alluded to, international politics and diplomacy. And it made me think a lot about the 1980s. So yeah. And really Cold War claims against the Soviet Union and the United States. And one of the things that's reoccurring over the course of the Cold War, so if folks who don't know, the Cold War is this ideological standoff between emerging superpowers of the United States of America and Soviet Union from the end of the Second World War up through the late 20th century. And one of the things that happens in this moment is that the United States and Soviet Union are competing against everything. So they're competing about refrigerators, they're competing about <laughs> space race, they're competing about arms, nuclear arms, right? So everything is a competition. And sports is completely a part of this. So one of the things that they have are dual meets. And in these dual meets, it's no other countries, just United States and Soviet Union. And they happen both here as well as over there. And it's track and field. And there's no final, I mean, trials, it's just straight, the Russian athletes, the United States athletes and their racing. And this was even kind of rigged in this way where you basically 
can't ha- like they basically knew that they basically split it so every time that the races happened it was a draw nobody ever won but they kept <laughs> staging them but one of the claims that constantly comes up in this moment against the Soviet Union is how the United States are pure athletes because it's about democracy and it's homegrown and people are just mm. naturally there it's not state sponsored right it's not they're not being groomed to have this kind of national export of excellence in athletics. And this is a reoccurring comment that gets brought up over and over again. And so when you flash forward to the 1980s and the United States boycotts the Olympic Games in Moscow in the 1980s. So 1984 is rolling around. And in the in the months leading up to 84, and actually the New York Times documented this last summer, I believe in August, there was an actual plan and documents revealed in the early 80s that reveal a kind of doping scheme in Russia leading up to the 84 games that we don't know if was ever put in action because they actually withdrew from the 84 games citing that anti-Soviet Union frenzy was being whipped up in the United States and that the athletes and themselves weren't protected. So I think that this kind of history of using the Olympic Games certainly obviously has long histories about how it reflects international politics as much as they claim to be a kind of politic-free space, but particularly this kind of claim about Russia, and we know that it has a lot of validity to it, but tying it to how the state is and the government is functioning and intertwining it with that and, and separating and kind of getting on a high horse, if you will, right, and saying, well, America is not doing this. And of course, there's doping in the United States. We see it. But the way that they try to distance or make examples of those people, I think, is is really interesting. That tie between the country and the athletes and the schematics are what I'm really, really interested in. And my last point here, and I'll kind of throw it back to you guys, is I am really interested in, as Jess kind of brought up, the sanctimony of this. I'm interested in the response of it. I keep thinking about Ben Johnson, you know, yeah. Canadian for, mm-hmm. for you, Shereen. But Mm -hmm. I keep thinking about a comment that he made, which is how racist he felt the reaction was to his positive result after the 88 games and how swift his downfall was. I'm thinking about Marion Jones. I'm thinking about how disposable some of these athletes become if they test positive. And I'm very interested in the Russia case to see how the state is still taking up or protecting their athletes. I think that's a great point, Amira. I think you have to look at kind of a national aspect of this, which is where I think then the politics that Jess was mentioning come in. Russia has been incredibly defiant about this. They have not admitted, despite all this evidence, that they did something wrong. There was a lot of questions and still are a little bit about whether or not Putin was going to boycott the Olympics after this announcement, because not boycotting kind of implies that you agree with their findings. And what Russia wants to do is continue to paint this as a campaign from the West against their very values. One funny note from Bonnie D. Ford, who is the most prominent Olympics reporter and for ESPN, her work is phenomenal. But in a breakdown of this, she said that last week, photos of Russia national teams officially branded apparel was unveiled. And it showed men's and women's sweatshirts emblazoned with the slogans, Russia di- Russians did it and, quote, I don't do doping. <laughs> 
they've been just like incredibly defiant. Right after this quote unquote ban was announced by the IOC, a pundit on Russian state TV said, quote, if the IOC decides on a neutral flag for Russian athletes, that's comparable to genocide because it affects a large number of citizens of a particular country. And another Russia 24 news channel had struck a big red mark through the Olympic rings on their logo. (laughs) So they just were like done. So Russia's not handling this well, but there are no indications right now that Putin is going to boycott. He said he will allow athletes if they qualify to compete. Well, that's a lot. That's a lot to think about. But before we start thinking that politics is removed from U.S. propaganda, just watch Rocky Four. (laughs) which has a huge part on doping a huge part on doping so and russia as the dopers right Mm -hmm. so it's worth it's it's worth some bit of circumspection in regards to what the u.s does with this information totally Okay, so soccer governance continues to provide chuckles and outrage for us here at burn it all down PSA for listeners not aware, what makes FIFA so powerful is that it administers, read, takes a cut from, all organized soccer under its umbrella, even your local U6 soccer club. So it's a little different than comparing it, you know, to other types of international sports organizations. I just want to sort of explain why we continue sort of harping on FIFA as as such an important body. I know last week we talked a bit, but since then there's been further hijinks at the FIFA trials in Brooklyn and a really interesting race for U.S. soccer president. Shireen, you want to start us off? Absolutely. Thanks, Bren. Money laundering, bribing, private jets, mansions, (laughs) massages. This isn't some type of theatrical escapade it is actually the ongoing fifa trial <laughs> of three prominent ex-fifa folks jose maria marine the former brazilian federation confederation had juan angel naput former fifa vice president and head of paraguayan soccer and manuel burga who's ran basically peruvian soccer for a very long time now these were among the 42 people initially indicted in this mega scandal, which results was a result of us finding out, us meaning the world, about a quarter century of endemic corruption at FIFA. So, I mean, I think it's really important when we look at the facts and look at everything coming out in terms of the trial. There have been reports of hundreds of thousands of dollars being given to Honduras, Costa Rica, El Salvador, and Guatemala. And I mean, I'm not trying to point only at, you know, the global South and Latin America and say, well, these are the corrupt places, because I firmly believe that FIFA has corrupted federations all around the world equally. Now, that being said, some of the, I mean, the least offensive thing that I found about this is the detail that Naput is interested in massages, manicures, and pedicures, because hello, we all enjoy these things, but not with underage, you know, sex workers and not with money that absolutely does not belong to him. Money that's supposed to be used for the development of the world's game. And when we see this and hear about this, I as an 
staunch advocate of the women's game, get really frustrated and angry. Now, in an interesting turn for the TMZ lovers out there of sport, (laughs) in an interesting turn of events, Kevin Jonas, yes, of the Jonas Brothers, was actually called to testify in this trial. And I know that (laughs) some of us have to say about this. And I mean, to be very honest to you, when I heard this, my first response was, you know, sort of echoing Lindsay, who was just like, what? (laughs) Who I know we'll talk about this. But (laughs) at this point, there could be... There could be absolutely. I was like, "Who is that again?" <laughs> there could be absolutely nothing that would shock me about this. I mean, it's 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 not even. I mean, Brenda alluded to this being a circus show, but Cirque du Soleil for me is about artistry and beauty. And this, <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is this totally is a fucking fair. this is a fucking gong show. And the, I mean, all I need now is like Shakira to come out somewhere with Beyonce and just slay with a baseball bat or hot sauce. But what I really, really want to happen is we're going to go Jonas Brothers is Hanson to come up with some version of Mbop Mbop. about FIFA. Like that would actually make me happy. So I'm going to throw it out to everybody else and then we can talk about the next most exciting thing in soccer right now. Who wants to talk about the Jonas Brothers? Can I, can I, can I, <laughs> please, please, please. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> this is all I, this is all the notes. Okay. I have to thank the comeback for this wonderful information. That is who I, I found this out from this week. I will quote their lead. Get ready for the latest twist of this FIFA corruption trial. Kevin Jonas of the Jonas Brothers was named as a witness for the prosecution and testified about the validity of a Paul McCartney concert <laughs> that took place in Argentina. End quote. Yes, friends. The entire reason Kevin Jonas was there was to say that he was actually at a Paul McCartney concert that (laughs) presumably thousands of other people were at, but they called, of all people, Kevin Jonas, (laughs) the Jonas Brothers, to testify to this because one of the defendants in the FIFA trial just refused to state that this concert ever even took place. So they had to That's prove amazing. They wow. had to prove it that the concert did take place. And to do that, they called in a Jonas brother who wasn't also performing at the concert. He was just in the crowd. Wow. And he didn't he like miss the yeah, opening yeah. sets? I'm, I'm getting anyway. there, Brad. I'm getting there. I mean, Amir, I'm getting there. Amira. Okay. Okay. So so according so BuzzFeed can Benzinger, who, thank God, was, you know, live tweeting this. I mean, bless you. So apparently he sat in the witness stand and he very politely answered three or four questions and then left. He did determine that the Paul McCartney concert took place because, as he said, that's something you remember. Paul McCartney's great. You don't just forget that, you know, very special. (laughs) And so under questioning, he said he didn't know who the defendant was, never saw him at the concert, but Kevin Jonas was, did a late to the concert and missed the first two songs of McCartney's because of traffic. So that is now we, know. Now, we know. now we know. All right, that- I need them to call Paul McCartney to the stand. Clearly, this is the smoking gun that the prosecutors are coming out with. Is Kevin Jonas? Like, I don't, I this can't even be a law and order episode, which is why they haven't done it yet how because you, this is how ridiculous. Do you just pretend a concert didn't happen. Like, they- <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We're living in a time like, of like, I love that your excuse reality. isn't that I wasn't there. It isn't like I didn't do this bad thing it's that that paul mccartney concert that thousands of people attended didn't exist didn't happen. <laughs> maybe he's not a beatles fan yeah, okay all right i feel like in between those sandwiches and sleeping jurors somewhere jose martin who's so slimy is looking at jonas saying is is that celibacy ring real like oh, <laughs> I, know, like, 
I thought they took those off. I think there's got to be such a cultural well, disconnect. He's married now. He's like, married. Wow. So oh, that's you the know. married yeah. one. That's the okay. married oh, one. Yeah. Okay. I thought that was Nick. No. I don't. Oh no, he took his off though. Oh yeah. I just watched a whole documentary. Amira knows. Okay, so in other soccer governance news, Shireen, we know that U.S. soccer president Sunil Gulati announced he will not run for re-election. And cue record- tears from no one. Yeah, yeah cue <laughs> tears from no one. And we're recording Sunday, December 10th, so there's still two days remaining for new candidates. That's when candidates must file the necessary paperwork to run for U.S. soccer president. That includes a background check and three nomination letters. <laughs> That's not much. <laughs> Shireen? Brenda, I'm going to nominate you, and we have more than enough people on this show <laughs> to. Okay, I'll totally letter. write a letter. Now, in, in, other, right there. <laughs> in other news, and our little group chat was ablaze this week with this news, is Hope Solo released, announced that she would be running for U.S. soccer president. And she announced it on Facebook. And it was really late at night. I think it was like 1030. And just it went like everything lit up and there was think pieces on it. And, you know, I mean, I read her statement. And to be honest with you, something she said about talking, she's critiquing very specifically the pay to play system and how it was financially taxing. And her actual quote was, I have personally witnessed young players heartbroken over the financial reality that they could no longer pursue their dream. And it's very expensive. I mean, we've talked about this on the show, how expensive competitive sports are and inaccessible, and really, really cost prohibitive. But the reality is hope solo. Okay, I can't even with all the problematic things there. The reality is, is that I think there was a really interesting article that we will link. And I really liked this. Hope Solo is not the right choice for US soccer president. But she is asking the right questions. And this was by Graham Hayes for ESPNW. And I think I really liked this, the the way this article was written. I thought it was fair. The US soccer presidency is a diplomatic position of sorts. It's it's, it's one that involves obviously managing, but it is a sort of a, a diplomatic position and that you have to work with federations and all over the world and other massively corrupt governing bodies. But the reality is, is I don't see her being able to do this. I mean, from aside from being absolutely rude to former players, I mean, she trashed openly Brianna Scurry, which pissed me off to no end. And I find unforgivable to her implications in, in very, very public domestic violence cases. And also her being like incredibly rude to opponents in the Olympics. Like, it's just not... I just, I personally don't see it. It doesn't mean that I can't support the idea of women because one of the things for me is there needs to be more women positions of governance in soccer across the board. And I support this. But there are other noms, right? Like, can we not look at that? There are other noms. The one thing I'll say is none of the other noms have put forward a class argument about the pay to play system. And Hope Solo didn't do a perfect job in her statement of making clear that the pay-to-play system is a way that U.S. women's soccer stays predominantly white. It excludes, you know, players of color in in swaths in part because of that. So I I totally agree, Shereen. I don't I don't think Hope Solo is the the candidate, but but I wish that some of the other candidates would take up that argument in a serious way. But thus far, I haven't seen it. Does anybody else have candidates that they're interested in? 
I'll just add in really quickly that I'm never going to look to U.S. soccer for like critical race analysis. <laughs> That's just never going to happen. But I agree with you. I think it's a responsibility to talk about this. And it's a badly kept secret that race is a huge problem at national level soccer. And, you know, and that's not even with Canada taking Josie. That's just with across the board. (laughs) Well, it's usually only discussed in light of the men's team. The women's team gets very little scrutiny for how white it's been. And Brianna Scurry, obviously, is is someone who's who's broken barriers early on, but who has also pointed out the, the trouble or difficulty. Another woman candidate is Kathy Carter, who's up to run. She's sort of basing her presidency on her corporate experience in PR mm-hmm. and doesn't seem to have any of those uh, criticisms. And she also, so far as I can tell, and we'll link her, she has a very flashy, she is in PR, she has a very flashy, very inviting website about her candidacy, but it doesn't say anything about demanding equal pay so far as I could tell, between the men and women's team. So that's fairly important. Some of the men actually do have that. So we'll we'll come back to this anyway. But you can you can bet whatever happens, it'll be sort of an ongoing an ongoing saga for sure. And I think the elections take place in February. Am I right? I think so. Uh, I, I, yeah. We'll know a lot more after these nominations become official, which will probably be when you guys are listening, but we don't have that information now. But yeah, I mean, as with everything, it's going to be dramatic. <laughs> so we'll be talking about it. <laughs> For sure. This week, Amira Rose Davis sat down with Silvio Ortiz, the legendary former volleyball player and coach. Amira, would you like to intro the interview? I would. In 1977, thousands of women gathered in Houston, Texas for the first National Women's Conference to celebrate the International Women's Year. Many celebrities, notable feminists, three former first ladies packed the convention hall. A torch had been carried by a team of runners, including former athletes, girls' athletics teams, regular everyday women. They ran from Seneca Falls to the convention site in Houston. To cap off this over 2,000-mile six-week marathon, three torchbearers, diverse athletes from Houston, were selected to run the torch the last mile, side-by-side with the great-grandniece of Susan B. Anthony, Bella Abzug, Billie Jean King, and Betty Friedan. Sylvia Ortiz, a volleyball player at the University of Houston, was one of those torchbearers. Today, I speak with her about being politically active as a college athlete in the 1970s and how it compares to today, her years of playing and coaching volleyball, and the ways the game has changed and access and equity in the sports. Check it out. Sylvia, I came to know you through the 1977 Women's Convention, and there's this iconic image of you and Michelle Cersei and Peggy Coconut holding this torch as you run it into this convention and everybody screaming and yelling. And I would like to kind of start there. How did you come to be involved in this moment? How did you decide to go? How are, you know, and what was that decision like? Wow. You know, actually, I was selected through the University of Houston. They were, at the time, for that last mile in Houston, searching for a white athlete, black, and a Mexican-American or Hispanic, you know, what's right these days. <laughs> but, so actually, I was at the University of Houston at the time, and I had just, I was graduating in December of 77, and, you know, I was, I was really basically the only Mexican at the University of Houston that was in athletics that, you know, played volleyball and badminton and 
You know, we didn't have basketball yet or softball. Well, no, I'm sorry, basketball's there, no, no softball. Yeah, that's how I was selected. It wasn't anything I applied for. And so at the time, as you mentioned, I mean, times were crazy back then with women's rights and equal rights and gay rights and everything else. And so my degrees, I got, I was a teacher, you know, and it was kind of scary for me because I just hired, you know, I had just gotten a head job in high school. Mm-hmm. And for me to be the front and center of this <laughs> convention, you know, it was scary for me, honestly. I didn't know how, you know, anybody was going to react to it. My district that I was just hired by, you know, did some friends, you know, at the time. But I think the thing I regret the most is that I really wasn't into the women's movement at that time. Mm-hmm. And the way I was selected was just, you know, through that through the University of Houston, and so my my regret is that instead of imba- being able to embrace the whole event, I was so scared. I, I really had very little emotional memories of that convention, mm-hmm. and I, I get sad because I see the pictures, and I see myself on the steps with, the, you know, the French First Ladies, and Billie Jean King, Bella Abzug, arm in arm, and I was in such fear of my job and my, you know, everything else around me. I, I just, that's my biggest regret about the whole mm-hmm. When you look around today, and we seem to have another kind of sweeping moment of organized athletic activism, do you think about that? Think about this kind of moment in in the 70s when you were, you know, (laughs) being the poster child of a very contentious (laughs) debate about women's rights and about gay rights. And, And do you see any parallels today, or do you see, you know, college athletes kind of facing similar constraints on activism? You know, I believe... I want to believe it's come a long way. I mean, obviously, we're not where we need to be yet in women's athletics at all. But I can say that there are more opportunities available for women and, you know, to speak out in athletics. And, no, I, I don't think there's the fear anymore of whether, you know, you're speaking out because you're gay and, or you're fighting for anything in your, in your, at your university as a, as, a university, as a coach. You know, everything was so unequal back then. And, and – in today's time, I do think there have, you know, we have made a lot of headway, especially when Title IX came about. Big controversy, but obviously brought about a lot of changes in, in athletics for women. You know, it's just really provided way many, you know, way more opportunities. I mean, scholarships in general, you know, there just weren't that many, or there were partials maybe, even at D1 schools. So, what was it like playing in this moment right after Title IX? So for the listeners, Title IX passes in 1972. So you're really right. one of the first waves of college right. athletes, right, after this legislation. What was it like? Well, it, it took a while because, you know, in 1972, I graduated from high school. And, you know, again, I was not very savvy on what was going on as far as any kind of athletic world, I mean, except the one I was playing in, which was high school was, was an inner city considered at that time. I was in HISD, Houston Independent School District. And, you know, we didn't have a whole lot at my high school, but we had a great coach, and, you know, that's how we did a lot. But by the time I got to the University of Houston in 72, it was the fall of 73, I guess, looking back, there was nothing equal about it. I mean, we traveled. You know, we did all those things. We practiced mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a coliseum area, and we practiced upstairs and above the, the, the gym facility there at Meltzer Gym at the University of Houston. Looks nothing like it does. It did then. It doesn't look like that now. 
I mean, they have all the updated, you know, their facilities. It's, I'm, I'm so proud of how far it's come. But we were we had nothing compared to what they have now. We played with the bare minimum at the University of Houston. That was pretty much my whole five years there. We we never made it out of there. <laughs> you know, through the years though, it was it was nice to see, you know, the, the bigger changes come about where everybody was catching up facility wise and scholarships number one, that the D one programs were now getting women's scholarships enough to, you know, form a team. Yes, it, it's come a long way, but by no means the fight's still going on. I mean, right. you know, the the money is still not as equitable in some of your smaller schools. As a high school coach of 38 years, I fought for years for my programs in girls sports. You know, we were always, during that time, we were controlled, let's say, late 70s to probably the mid to late 80s. We were controlled by a football coach who mm. was the campus athletic director. And so we had no insight to what funds were being spent where. Although, you know, we were lucky to get new uniforms every five years or so. <laughs> but certainly it wasn't equitable. I can say that now that I've been through the whole, you know, my whole career. And I will say that as far as women in administration and athletics, you know, most of your district athletic directors were male and still are in Texas. There are a, a few more women in your big 6A schools. Actually, a good friend of mine that I taught with it for 18 years at my first school was a head basketball coach there. She's now the athletic director at in Spring Branch Independent School District. Mm. And so that those are major milestones for women's athletics. My last job in high school was in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I was actually a campus coordinator equal to the men's football coach. He was mm. He was in charge of the men's sports on campus. And I was in charge of the women's sports on campus. And that's what I did there. And I, I actually had hands on the budget and for the entire campus budget with the football coach. So, of course, mm. you know, we worked together. And, and he was it was great to work with. You know, they had a, a good athletic director supporting women's sports. And so I was able to get in on those decisions, on where the money was spent. And so that's when I really understood how sorted we really were all those years right. back in it's the so, day. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's, it's, it's such a great reminder about how all the multiple ways that money is involved in governing oh. sports. And that kind of mm-hmm. reminds me, so I've been getting really into women's college volleyball, and on the podcast a few weeks ago I had the pleasure of speaking to Simone Lee, who's here at Penn State, just was named Big Ten right. Player of the Year. And we had a wonderful conversation. One of the things that came up was about access and equity within the sport of volleyball. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, you know, if you have any comments or ideas about volleyball itself as a sport. Is is this one of the sports that you need to kind of go through club teams? Is there a kind of class disparity within volleyball? You know, when club ball began in, in Texas here and, and started out in the Bay Area, it was pretty much it was very expensive, number one, and continues to be. I mean, you know, kids are paying, parents are paying a lot of money to play. And so, yes, unless your kids are involved in top-level club programs, I'd say across the country now, your chances of going on, you know, and playing aren't, aren't going to be very good. Now, there's a good side and bad side to that. I think it's been great for the sport in the sense that college recruiting they have tons to choose from now. You know, I mean, it, it's it's not like, you know, you go to a club tournament as a college coach and everything is, everybody that's 
anybody is playing. So it makes the recruiting, I guess, in one sense, a lot easier. On the other hand, like I said, all kids can't afford your top-level club programs. And so in that sense, they're at a disadvantage depending on where you come from. If you're from an inner city school where funds are tight and kids, they're socioeconomically, you know, they're not upper class or even upper middle class. It's pretty hard to afford those top-level teams. And, you know, years ago, they used to even give scholarships in clubs for kids, you know, to help out. And that's pretty much non-existent anymore because there's so many kids playing, you know, they they have their pick. I think that's kind of, if there's a downside to it, I'd say it's, it's that, you know, it's hard to get there unless you have money. The big pluses, goodness gracious, the level of play, the power game, it's, it's just, it's amazing how far it's come. And all the rule changes, I think, have been wonderful for volleyball. It's exciting. I think it's, I think one of the big factors is the big kids that are playing now today. You know, mm-hmm. in my day, you had a six-footer, and they didn't even touch a volleyball until they were in volleyball. Basketball, mm-hmm. they started little dribblers. You know, you didn't have that. Volleyball, if you got a six-footer, very uncoordinated in high school, couldn't walk and chew gum. But, you know, now with clubs. And Ruth Nelson, I'm sure you've heard of her, with her BYOP program, that's amazing. It's like having little dribblers, you know, or peewee mm-hmm. for baseball, things like that. So, yeah, look how tall they are and what they're doing. They're amazing, and it's so much fun to watch. One of the things that maybe hasn't changed so much, and kind of returning to when you said you were selected by the Women's Convention because they were looking for a Mexican-American, what do you think about the state of Latina athletes? I feel like it's definitely underrepresented population in women's athletics at, at a high level. What is your experience with that? Personally, my experience was one that if my high school coach hadn't stepped into my life, you know, if I hadn't had her as a, in high school, I probably wouldn't have gone to college because I was mm. one of those that grew up where my mom and dad didn't go to school and I wasn't headed to college. And she took me and said, you're going to go. And I went and everything was amazing for me. I mean, uh, my athletic career I played volleyball softball badminton and all those things and that that wouldn't have occurred where I came from so culturally for us it has changed I mean Hispanic women and are just on the chart now the convention the 40th anniversary here in Houston that occurred it was so refreshing to see so many Latinas out leading and trying to get things going you know in Mm -hmm. that direction athletically I don't know, honestly, because there are opportunities out there. I know soccer is one sport where they do play more, but volleyball, gosh, you know, you have to be so dang tall and, you know, just (laughs) we're just not that tall, you know. But I will say that's why the libero, you know, comes into play. Softball is another sport that I think in the Texas area you will see more Hispanics playing or Latinas, you know, these days what's correct. I I don't know. But, (laughs) you know, in the national softball tournament, if you look across that scale, there are quite a few Latinas playing and on some of the top teams, I mean, in the country. So, again, size isn't a factor there, you know. So I would say we're hindered somewhat in size in volleyball only because, you know, there is a place as a libero, but obviously not many positions available. You know, you're limited there. But I think it's on the rise. I mean, I don't I don't think it's a culture thing anymore for Latinas or any or women of any color. I think, you know, we're fortunately we're breaking out of that mold and not 
feeling like you have to be so traditional or submissive to anyone. So hopefully that's, that's going to continue to improve. And who knows? It would be a dream to see a first Latina Olympian in volleyball. Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> yes, it would. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat about your experiences as an athlete in the 70s. It's something that is so important to understand where women's athletics came from in the long history of involvement yeah. of women, women of color in, in the game and in all types of sports. So I, I appreciate your time. Oh, no problem. I appreciate you talking to me, and thank you for the work you do. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. And now it's time for our weekly catharsis, where we burn everything that's been horrible in sports. Amira, can you get us started? Yes. Today I have like a burn unburn. In light of our conversation last week and in subsequent weeks, I want to revisit the burn that I did of Gabby Douglas for her comments that were victim shamey comments in response to Allie Raisman. And the reason why I want to revisit this is in light of her, her coming forward to say that she also was abused by Larry Nassar. Now, one of the things that I really want to make clear here is that while sometimes we burn people, a lot of what we do are burning actions. We're not throwing Gabby on the burn pile. In in weeks that we've burned people that we like, like Megan Rapinoe, right? There's times where things can still be very harmful. And I think that Gabby's case really reminds us and illustrates the way that hurt people can hurt people. And that they're one of the insidious things about assault and cover-up and pain is that it manifests in multiple ways and create a cycle and it create dismissal, can create internal problems. It and, and I think that that's really on display here. I think that it's really, really worth it to always say it's not okay to victim shame. It's worth it to say that it's not okay to perpetuate ideas that it matters what you're wearing. But I also think we have to hold space for people to grow. And I think that I also kind of want to slow burn the process that led her to disclosing this. I thought it was kind of a forced move and it's clear that she has things to process, but I did want to hold space and acknowledge that she's in this moment of growth and that she is dealing with this and that she is also a victim and victim shaming has no place in our society and also we need and part of that is also being accountable to survivors and uplifting them in a multitude of ways so my kind of burn unburn is about the bravery of gabby douglas coming forward burning the process that led her to do it and yeah there you have it our first unburn the way hurt people can hurt people so it's really, not as light as our usual burn, but I think it's a necessary And, and we'll, just, we'll just throw all Absolutely. everything that led to, you know, like you said, to Gabby having to disclose and also just victim shaming in general. I think we can do another burn for that. Yes. Burn. 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 On that note, Lindsay. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of related. So last week, if you listen to last week's episode, which if you haven't, I would ask you to go back and do that when you're done with this one. We talked to Rachel Denhollander, and he was the first victim to come forward publicly to accuse or to talk about the abuse she suffered at the hands of Larry Nassar. Now, this week, 
Nasser was sentenced to 60 years in prison on federal charges of child pornography. And he has two sentencing hearings upcoming in January. So that's all really exciting. And it is because of the two women we talked to last week on the show that Nasser is being brought to justice because the investigative reporting by the Indy Star and because of Den Hollander really starting this wave of victims coming forward. So that's really incredible. But we want to put on the burn pile once again, USA Gymnastics, who the very same day this historic ruling came down to put Nasser in jail, USA Gymnastics filed a ruling asking to be dismissed. So they wanted to dismiss the the civil suit against USA Gymnastics. So the name of the court case is Den Hollander et al., meaning all the victims, versus Michigan State et al., meaning Michigan State and the other institutions who are responsible, including USA Gymnastics. USA Gymnastics filed to dismiss this case against them, saying... Plaintiff's negligence-based claim fails as a matter of law because USA Gymnastics did not owe a legal duty to the plaintiffs. USA Gymnastics had no legal duty to protect plaintiffs from Nasser's criminal conduct. And it also says that USA Gymnastics had no duty to warn Michigan State, Twistars, or others of the reported concerns about Nasser. Holy God. Terrifying. terrifying. (laughs) USA Gymnastics. I don't even know how you come back from that. And if you really want to argue over these technicalities and think that because this is a legal thing, that this is the right thing to do, it is not. You failed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. We'll never know how many girls. Burn. 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 Jessica. Yeah, so I want to talk about Oregon basketball in October. Kenny Jacoby, who's a young reporter from Sports Illustrated, who actually will graduate from Oregon any day now. That's how young he is. Reported on a case of a basketball player, Kaval Bigby Williams, a power forward who had transferred to Oregon from Gillette College in Wyoming back in 2016. Bigby Williams went back to Wyoming in September of 2016 for a visit, returned to Oregon with an investigation for rape hanging over him. Oregon told Jacoby that head coach Dana Altman was aware that police were looking into Bigby Williams, but Altman didn't know why or anything about the nature of the allegation. According to a UO spokesperson, it is the school's practice not to notify coaches when student athletes are accused of sexual assault so as not to risk, quote, tainting investigations. Jacoby didn't let it go. He requested Altman's phone records from the days around when the school learned about what had been reported in Wyoming. Here's what he found, quote, In the first 48 hours after school officials learned of the police investigation into Bigby Williams, Altman had five phone calls with Lisa Peterson, the school's deputy Title IX coordinator, and another four phone calls with Bigby Williams' former coach at Gillette College, Sean Neary. Both Peterson and Neary had direct knowledge of the criminal investigations into Bigby Williams. How about that? Altman has told another reporter, he didn't answer any of Jacoby's requests, that he didn't ask for any specifics on those calls, y'all. He just asked if there were criminal charges pending. Okay, sure. (laughs) The thing is, this isn't a first for Oregon and Altman. In March of 2014, three men's basketball players were accused of gang raping a fellow student. One of those players was a transfer student who had left his previous school after he was reported for sexual assault. There's a lot of muddied water as to who knew what when and how the school made decisions about that case, but the players were not disciplined until after the NCAA tournament. 
In May of that year, they were dismissed from the team and then expelled from school. Months later, a local news station, quote, reported that, quote, University of Oregon officials may have delayed the expulsion of the three men's basketball players in order to maintain the team's academic rating, avoiding NCAA sanctions, and assuring bonuses be paid to coaches and officials. And now there's the Jacoby Williams case. Sure is helpful when coaches don't know anything about anything bad. Burn that excuse. Burn. Shireen. Okay, so mine's pretty quick. I just I had a lot of things to burn this week, but one of the most frustrating things I kept finding was that we heard a lots of reports again about the Nike Pro Sport hijab, the pro hijab that came out. They, they're actually releasing it for sale on December 1st. So if anyone wants to buy me one, I'm totally open for that. Or they want to send me free swag, fine, whatever. But the reality is the way that this was reported on. The release was supposed to come only in the Middle East in spring 2018, but now it's being sold worldwide. Now, the problem is, like I said, the reporting has said that this is the first hijab, sports hijab of its type, et cetera, et cetera, which is absolutely not true. I mean, there's a 20-year history of modest sportswear and how people have been doing it. And what bothers me is this is capitalist sort of encroachment onto everything else that's already been done. Yes, arguably Nike is the biggest sportswear brand in the world, but doesn't mean that they're the first, doesn't mean they're the most original. And literally their ideas have been coming off the backs of other predominantly women's work. And so I wrote a piece from Muslim Media Watch about this. It was pretty ranty because, I mean, I tend to do that and it's fine, but I just don't like it. And what's happening is the athletes are being used as marketing tools. And I totally understand that because in a world where Muslim women don't often get a choice to be brand ambassadors of anything. Nike is a great opportunity. And I'm sure the product is amazing, whatever. But I just really dislike that we cut out those parts of history and not just because I have two historians as co-hosts. But just really, (laughs) I hate the fact that this happens because the work that I do and the work that all these women have done and these athletes have done, it literally just discounts it. And I really want to burn that this week. Okay, I'm going to close out this week with a match tip to Shireen for reminding me of this awful garbage. I want to burn the inactivity of women's football, particularly in Nigeria. I know we've covered this, but understand we're going to keep covering it because it's the mundane machinery that keeps women's football pushed aside globally despite all of FIFA's bullshit rhetoric to the contrary. So last year, 40,000 people attended the final of the Women's Africa Cup of Nations between Cameroon and Nigeria. No sooner had it been played than the Nigerian players had to protest because those women had not received the promised salaries and bonuses. And now, poof, total inactivity for the past year. If you go to the, wow. the if if you go to like the FA, the official FA site on FIFA and you click on women, there's nothing there. There's no nothing on deck, no no scheduled friendlies. You only get the men's last friendly with Argentina, which they won. And that's it. And when officials were asked, and this is, I really want to extra burn this, they responded that it was strategy. Ha, oh, my God. Ha, 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 ha. That's no, no one thinks that's strategy. Nowhere, <laughs> no place does somebody say, we're just not going to play a year strategically. That's stupid. And we don't believe wow. that. We don't believe that, Nigeria FA. None of us believe it. So we, uh, Nigeria's had a professional women's league for decades. That is just total fakery. So I want to burn it. Help me burn it. Burn! 
Okay, rising like the phoenix from the ashes are our badass women of the week. We're going to start off with some wonderful honorable mentions. First, we'd like to, before we even do that, recognize the victims of Larry Nassar, who was sentenced to 60 years in prison this week. Our honorable mentions include Latoya Snell, a runner, chef, and blogger at Running Fat Chef, who says that comments about her weight won't keep her away from future runs. So great work to combat fat shaming on her part. Former Sweden goalkeeper Carolyn Janssen and former Chilean Youth International and one of my favorite people, Camila Garcia, have joined FIFA Pro's global board and will help advocate for professional footballers. Brigitte Laquette, a Matisse woman, is the first Indigenous woman to play for Team Canada and is hoping to score a spot on the Olympic hockey team. So best of luck to her. And can I get a drum roll? Okay. (laughs) That was fancy. That was amazing. The bum bum is so holiday spirit as well. We should thank (laughs) friend of the show, Aubrey Bloomfield, for this suggestion. The badass woman of the week is Laurel Hubbard, New Zealand's first transgender weightlifter who recently won silver at the World Championships in California. Her silver medals are the first ever claimed by New Zealand weightlifter at a senior world championships. She changed gender four years ago and complies with all physical conditions put in place by the International Olympic Committee, including having her testosterone tested. And she continues, despite that, to face nasty abuse in social media and transphobic comments and complaints from coaches and other athletes. Even to the press, other coaches have expressed they don't want her to win. They don't want her to compete. So for for her perseverance and badassery, Congratulations, Laurel Hubbard. You are our badass woman of the week. Woo! As we wind down what has been a difficult year for many of us, let's talk about what's giving us hope. Lindsay? Yeah, I got to actually meet Miss Amira in person this week, and we never met in person. We had margaritas. We had our own burn pile. It was wonderful. (laughs) And yeah, that made me really happy. And honestly, I'm really excited about this Patreon campaign. I think in addition to helping make us sustainable, I think it's going to be a great way for us to connect with our listeners a little bit more and get our listeners a little bit more involved in the show. And we just love you guys so much. And we're so excited about the future. And we're so appreciative for all the work you've done getting us this far. We forgot to put on the the rewards Shireen selfies. I think that should be like a really big section. I thought those were Spe- just for me, Brenda. Speaking <laughs> speaking of which, Shireen, what's keeping you going? Well, first and foremost, the TFC winning was a really, really big thing. <laughs> TFC I'm still years. reveling in that, and I will revel in it for a while and buy some champion gear. I did order a pair of new sneakers because I'm running, and the sneakers that I got from Adidas are actually called Vengeful Woman. That's the name of the sneakers. <laughs> oh, yes. Which I am all about, and I also am really excited about a lot of things, and one is because a Danish national newspaper actually named Nadine Nadim. Dane of the Year, who you all know I love so much. And Berlingsk is the name of the newspaper. So I'm also really excited about that for her. So I'm, I'm, I'm just accumulating joy. And we celebrated my mom's birthday. And happy Yay. birthday, Mama. Happy love birthday. Her. Amira. Yes, well, I had a great time meeting Lindsay as well. It, it, it was worth the DC traffic. <laughs> 
I'm hopeful that by the time you hear this, fun listeners, I will be done grading. (laughs) And then I'm off to Hawaii. I'm very excited. I am doing a little bit of work. I have some really cool research to do about the first Black woman athletic director there at the University of Manoa and her relationship to the author of Title IX. I'm very excited to get into the archives and do that. And I'm also excited because my husband's coming with me, but the kids are not. So a little end of the semester vacation for me as well. Awesome. Jess? Yeah, it snowed in Texas this week. And my son, who was nine, could not remember ever seeing snow at our house. Oh. He There was snow when he was a baby, but he could not remember it. And he was so excited. He made snowballs. He wasn't good at it. So I had like a whole five minute, like <laughs> he told me all about it. He, we have one in our freezer now because he wanted to keep it. He played out in, out in it for a couple hours. His joy was just like contagious. It was so fun. And then like the best part was that the snow only stuck around for 18 hours or so. And we're back to sunny days in the 60s. Okay. And for me, it's finishing the semester. I feel like even the most beautiful and constructive teacher-student relationships should and must come to an end. (laughs) Here, here. I, I have loved my students, and it's a warm, fuzzy feeling to take stock of what we've learned this semester, and it's a warm, fuzzy feeling to be moving on. So that's what's good for me this week is the closure, you know, the reflection, the closure, all that jazz. All right. That's it for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. We'd like to thank Hofstra University for its ongoing support. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can also be heard on Apple Podcasts, Stitchers, iTunes, TuneIn, and Google Play. We always appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe, rate, tell us what you liked or what you didn't like about the show. We hope you'll also follow us on Twitter at BurnItDownPod and on Facebook at BurnItAllDown. You can also reach us via our website at burnitalldownpod.com. And that's where you can find our show notes and links to the topics that we discuss. And of course, you can always email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. That's it for us this week. I'm Brenda Elsie. On behalf of Shereen Ahmed, Amira Rose Davis, Lindsay Gibbs, and Jessica Luther, wishing you a peaceful and marvelous end to 2017.